Hi everyone, this is two-time World Poker Tour champion Jonathan Little, and I want to tell you about my training site, PokerCoaching.com. Poker Coaching is the place to be if you want to increase your poker skills and learn to crush the games. It's the only place to quickly increase your win rate with active learning, so you can achieve your full poker potential without having to hire an expensive coach. Right now, podcast listeners can score a free membership by visiting pokercoaching.com slash card player and get access to top training tools like our interactive hand quizzes, our 7, 14, and 30-day challenges, and a roster of elite coaches such as Matt Affleck, James Romero, Burt Draftganger-Stevens, Michael Acevedo, and dozens of others. Again, that's pokercoaching.com slash card player to get your free membership right now. By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales, both on and off the felt. Hello and welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 138, featuring the 2022 World Series of Poker Player of the Year, Dan Zak. Now, Dan had an incredible summer on the Las Vegas Strip. He cashed in 16 series events. He made four final tables. He won two bracelets, giving him three total. And he cashed for just over $1.45 million. It was a dream fulfilled for Dan, who first discovered poker as a 10-year-old watching Chris Moneymaker take down the 2003 WSOP main event. He was quickly playing online and uh, even managed to read the Harrington on Hold'em series by age 13. Although he had the skills to build up big bankrolls, he couldn't hold on to them and it took him a while to find his footing in the poker world. Ultimately, however, He was able to plug his leaks and is now considered one of the best all-around players in the game today. And as it turns out, he's got some great stories about coming up in the game. You'll hear about the time he lost $20,000 on a church retreat and also the summer he turned $1,000 into $100,000. There was a big shot taken in the Bahamas and numerous sessions that would start on a Friday afternoon and wouldn't end until Monday morning. At one point, he was even staked for a high roller by a complete stranger who never even learned his name. Anyway, that is enough intro. Here is my conversation with Dan Zach. I am here with Dan Zach, the 2022 WSOP Player of the Year. 
Dan, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Do you do you feel a little taller these days? A little your chest your chest out a little puffier, being the huh. champ now. Uh, it's definitely been a big boost in confidence um, with the success the last couple months, but I, I wouldn't say much beyond that. Trying okay, to okay. trying to stay grounded. There you go. You got to stay humble in these in these times atop the mountain. Uh, we I will get to your success at the World Series of Poker this summer on the Las Vegas Strip, which is a weird thing to still say. Uh, but in this show, we go back to the beginning. So let's go back to New Jersey, where you uh, were born and raised. What, what was uh, life like back then? Um, so I grew up in Princeton, which is uh, central New Jersey. It's a college town. Mm-hmm. And life was normal, quiet uh, growing up. Um, what do your I, parents I, do? My dad is a doctor, and my mom is a registered nurse, although she really didn't work while we were growing up. She just was uh, raising the kids. Uh, I'm one of three. So it sounds like you were destined to go into medicine. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a very medical family. My, my sister also ended up becoming a nurse, so that was the, the typical path. Okay, but um, I guess the story goes that you saw poker very early on (laughs) and that kind of derailed you from the medical path. For sure. I first, well, I first started playing poker, like five card draw penny poker with my family. I remember I won a, um, there was a family reunion in Maine when I think I was seven or eight, where one of the things that was lotteried off was a jar of pennies, which I won. And then, uh, we all played penny poker with, but in terms of exposure to Texas Hold'em and real poker, it was 2003 Chris Moneymaker. I think I'm like the youngest and last person in the poker scene that that's how I really got my start into poker. And I was 10 when that aired on ESPN. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but that's incredible. I mean, you literally are the last person I think Moneymaker hooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh I can't imagine it got many 9-year-olds. Um yeah, that's incredible. So you're 10 years old. Uh, I guess you're watching your brother play. Yeah, so after Moneymaker 1, my brother was 18 at the time. And so he was playing a bit online back then the sites were Paradise Poker, like the original party poker with all the people seated at the table. Um and so I would watch uh, originally over his shoulder, he was playing, you know, $5 sit and goes and also constantly forcing friends and family to have poker nights where we would all wear sunglasses and we, we bought like a nice chip set. I, I made my parents that Christmas buy a very nice chip set. Okay. So you got, you, it was initially embraced as like a little hobby for young Dan. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, anything too serious it was just like a cute interest um that i had and just was very into but not in any sort of harmful way is it true that you read harrington on holden when you were 11 uh so i think it was probably a little bit later than that uh if i had to guess like 13 i at some point i made my dad get those for me and i i did read them cover to cover many times especially the (laughs) 
the third book uh, for Whole Harrington on tournaments has quizzes in it that I think at some point I had every answer and explanation memorized. <laughs> I wonder if you ever reference that in a, in, a, in a tight spot these days. No, I don't. I don't even know that I could recall <laughs> them at this point. But I, I definitely they were my most read books as a as a child. Okay, and you know. I think the statute of limitations is up, but you were also playing online at this time, right? Yeah, I slowly but surely. I mean, I remember middle school, I was mostly playing play money tournaments where I would come home from whichever sport season it was. I was playing basketball and baseball and I would get home from practice after school. And instead of doing homework, I would hop into every single play chip tournament on party poker that used to run as well as at some point, I think still in middle school, full tilt existed and they would run both free rolls and these satellite to a satellite to a seat on poker after dark that were free. And I would play every single one of those as well. (laughs) Can you imagine if you had won that? (laughs) Well, yeah, I would have had to send uh, my dad, I guess it would have been, yeah, I don't. I don't know that they would accept uh, thirteen or fourteen year old Dan showing up to the to the set. I mean, that would have been pretty legendary though if you just showed up. <laughs> I'm the guy. Deal with it. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, I don't know exactly what would happened. It would have been fun. <laughs> I got kind of close once. I mean, the satellite, the original satellites, where every three minutes they ran three hundred sixty mans which then got you into a once a month 2000 man tournament where the top nine advanced to a final. And I won the 2000 man, like I final tabled it once. And so then you make it to a final, which is another like 3000 person tournament where the outright winner got the seat. And I I finished like 200th in one of those. So pretty (laughs) close. Uh, Not too bad. So when did you start playing for real money? Um, Probably around 13 or 14, I would occasionally cash on the full tilt free roll or at some point the poker stars free roll. And I would try to spin those up. Um, and then I at some point convinced my dad to let me make some small deposits as well, where it would be like, uh, you know, a $20 deposit here or there. And I would play the $5 tournaments or two cent, four cent, no limit cash, something like that. So this is around uh, 2006 era, I'd say. That's when I started. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's about when I was getting started. I was in college. I mean, (laughs) um, yeah. So what's this story about you losing 20,000 during a family trip? Ha, uh, that's a lot later. So that was. All right, we, we could get to it. But yeah, I wasn't sure. That was senior year of high school. That's not a family trip. It was a church retreat. So I was even better. um, Yeah, I was a member of high school fellowship was what it was called at my church. And the seniors were always I think actually all the high schoolers were invited to this big church retreat in North Carolina called Montreat, where lots of different church congregations brought their high schoolers to all do activities together. Oh, my God. I think I, I did that. I'm pretty sure I did that. Okay, I'm from, I'm from. I'm pretty sure I went to that exact retreat. In yeah, it runs every year. It's very eighth big. grade. Uh, there was yeah. Did you sleep outside one night? Yes. 
Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah it's like a huge, huge gathering. There's, I'm I mean, we were coming sure from New Jersey, grade. yeah, and we took a bus down, all of us together. But people came from all over the eastern seaboard. I think people were as far as you know, Maine or Florida, coming to North Carolina, and probably as far west as like Ohio or Kentucky. So yeah, it, we were South beautiful. South Florida. It was a long trip. I remember uh, twelve kids in a big van uh, going up there. But yeah, okay, so you're at this um re- church retreat and <laughs> playing online yeah so i by high school times i was having um the bigger spin-ups um as i was getting better but i still sort of lacked any kind of control um and so i think i'd spun a bankroll to 10 or 15k right before this trip happened and was super psyched about it and so was sneaking off to play um during any downtime uh, of the retreat and at some point got it up to 20 and then uh, i remember blasting through it at um like 100 200 heads up limit hold'em against unsure i can't remember the screen names anymore but one of the ogs that used to sit those tables there's a lot of legends probably like terence chan or something but uh yeah um and then being very very sad uh, for the rest of that trip after uh, grounding my account to zero. I think that was the highest I'd ever had it um, up to that point. Yeah, and, I, I, I imagine it'd be tough to to bounce back from that. People just looking over at you like, why is Dan crying into his Bible, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very, well, I mean, you could always just say you're having a religious moment or a, right. a experience <laughs> and people will leave you alone. But I was definitely... Uh, very sharp change in mood at the time because i was super stoked on the way down there at the start of the trip and it's a pretty sobering uh moment although i was pretty used to these sobering moments as a kid as i just really never found the the answer to tilt and control issues when i was a teenager so you're watching poker on tv at that time who were your your heroes back then um, I think most of the personalities, ESPN did a really good job of making everyone aspirational. It's It's been interesting to meet all these guys uh, as I've gotten older. But I mean, the big names back then were obviously uh, Helmuth, Negranu, uh, Doyle got a bunch of TV time back then. Alan Cunningham got a bunch of TV time back then, really liked him, um, especially since his personality was more of a relatable one for me than some of the louder names mike madisau mm-hmm. obviously the quiet assassin right you, you like that guy the guy who just yeah. sits silently at the table and takes the money <laughs> yeah just always very nice and just played well and seemed to have results um back then so i remember being very excited with his 2006 we were talking about earlier it was the year he um final tabled the main that's the year jamie gold won mm-hmm. but every year as a kid i you know, religiously followed the the World Series live updates on online. Tried to build my own like fantasy teams. Tried to uh, uh, predict what would happen, and and then would couldn't wait for the TV episodes to come out later that year as well. Well, I apologize for those live updates in 2006. That was my first summer in the gig. <laughs> oh, was um, it? Okay. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the fact that you were. 10 11 12 13 and just exposed to poker in general how do you feel about that nowadays um 
was probably really bad. Uh, I've gotten super lucky to have found a way to turn it into a positive. Um, but it definitely like colored my teenage years pretty negatively. It's not a game really designed for children, especially to be played for money. Uh, and was super unhealthy for me, both from a, a addictive standpoint, as well as just, you know, I wasn't winning. Uh, I was good so I could have spin-ups, but you can't win at poker without um, the control aspect as well as the skill. And that just didn't exist. And is I don't know how many 14-year-olds you'll find that, that, that you can even learn that skill. So uh, it was tough. Um, it probably was... I, probably if I could go back, would choose not to have had that exposure as a kid. Although, you know, it's, it's obviously helped me a lot um, in my career now to have learned so many tough lessons about the game growing up that I think I have found ways to pull from as well. Yeah. Unfortunately you got those lessons out of the way during some, uh, some crucial developmental years, but yeah, I was talking to Jennifer uh, Shahadi about this on the last podcast about how chess has kind of this pipeline of new players because we teach it to children and poker doesn't really have that. Uh, you know, there might be a you know a wacky math professor here and there who incorporates it into a lesson about uh, probability or odds or whatever, but it's not really taught anywhere like that at that level. You have to seek it out and most likely pay for the lessons uh, if you want to learn it. Yeah, well, I think chess is a much better pipeline, even if you wanted to get into poker, because I think one of the really tough things for children with poker is the concept of fairness. I mean, adults struggle with it, too, where in chess, you can get behind like the better player wins most of the time. And like you lost because of what you did and you can sit down and analyze the mistakes that you made and learn mm. and get better. Um, chess is another game that I played a decent amount as a kid. My parents uh, sent me to a bunch of chess camps and I, I was quite into it for a while, but it's a lot easier to handle uh, emotionally the the ups and downs of chess because everything feels very fair and straightforward and understandable in a way that poker is a lot harder to conceptually deal with the the variance and the swings where you might not have done anything wrong and things might have gone really terrible or you might have done things really wrong and things might have gone great and that's again like most adults and full-time players still struggle with that and it's it would be even harder to try to get that across to children yeah, I want to go back to your your time in school for a second, but uh, in a second. But um, I want to bring up a quote that I heard you say on another podcast where you were talking about um, how you used to try to convince other people to try to get into poker, but then you realized that you don't know if you can be a professional poker player until you've gone through those downswings and been crushed by variance and and seen how you can respond. Yeah, sure. So um, when I first started having success and realizing how um, strong the earning potential was for myself in poker, one of the first things I wanted to do was bring my smart friends along who I was like, wow, like you guys could definitely do this. You're smart enough to figure this out. I, I can I can help teach you. 
And the roadblock that everyone kept running into that I learned very quickly was the all those trials that I had gone through as a kid were not unique to me. They're how most people first experience um, poker or any sort of gambling uh, venture in general. Um, all the mental blocks of uh, doing the right thing and and having a, a negative outcome occur to you or just handling um, variance in general is is not something that most people are equipped to handle. And so even my smartest friends who I would bring along as, as soon as they started hitting those blocks, they kind of, uh, you know, would start tilting or just collapse emotionally and not want to play or and lose motivation to study. And it's not just the friends that I brought in. I mean, you just constantly watch the cycle of young kids dropping out of college to come and try to play poker full time. And just so frequently, as soon as they hit their first wall or their second wall, they just fall off and disappear from the scene. And it's there's clearly some intangible skills um, that are pretty hard to test for um, before you're in your first multi-month downswing. And it, it seems that most people can't handle that. And so it's a really risky venture to ask someone to commit themselves to it when you're guaranteed to hit these walls. And it's pretty likely that you're just going to find out you can't do it. And now you're stuck. If you, you know, if you dropped out of college, you're, you're stuck with a big decision to make. If you drop to quit a job, it's a big, big, uh, big problem now. And so it, it's just so unlikely, it seems that for the average person that they're going to be equipped to handle it, even this very smart average person that I no longer really advocate anyone uh, to pursue poker full-time. It, it's just too risky in a way that isn't how usually people think of it as being risky. And and that's just whether or not you have those um, hidden personality traits to be able to handle the, the job and everything it entails. Uh, you mentioned dropping out of college. You yourself went to Pepperdine over in California. Oh, by the way, that's a that's quite a, a trip away from home <laughs> for college. Any thought process there? Of uh, dropping out or of uh, choosing to attend well, uh, Pepperdine? Just choosing, yeah, choosing to go to California when your your parents your, your parents are back home in New Jersey. Was it all so, the uh, tribal casinos? <laughs> no. So um, I was, despite how poorly poker was going for me up until Black Friday, I really still thought poker was going to be my career, and I was just, I mean. I used delusional, although it's funny because it, I ended up making it in poker anyway. Um, but at the time, it certainly was delusional to to think that, given how online was going and and just how out of control I was. But Black Friday happened, and that dream died, and I realized I had to go to college. <laughs> um, and sober. yeah, well, uh, sober is the funny word because um, Pepperdine is a dry campus, and I had grown up around. Um, a lot of alcohol and didn't want to drink myself. And so it was the best school in the country I could find that was strictly sober. Uh, wow. And I wanted to find a friend group that didn't drink. And so I applied and got into Pepperdine and found some of my best friends still today uh, are my friend group from there. So I, I was really happy that I uh, made that choice and ended up out there. And you never went to the casinos at this point. Um, not until junior year of college. Well, I, so I studied abroad 
sophomore year of college in Germany. And that was the first time that I played poker since Black Friday. So it was almost two years cold. And I went to Casino Wiesbaden in Germany and then Casino Aachen in Germany and had a like mini realization that people were a lot worse live than they had even been online. Um, and also like met and saw people who were professional poker players and talked to them a bit and was like, oh, they get reignited this interest and fire of like, I could do this. I'd rather do this than, uh, you know, a regular job. And so I was once again uh, kind of fueled by this interest. And when I got back home that summer, I started going to Turning Stone, which is the tribal casino on the East Coast uh, in upstate New York. So they're 18 plus. I was 20 at the time. And I spent the whole summer there after my sophomore year of college and won a lot of money. And that was the bankroll that I used to to drop out of college um, in junior year. So in junior year, I was still in college because I was still 20. And I was going to Casino Morongo on weekends, which is another tribal casino, 18 plus in California. And then right before my 21st birthday is when I dropped out. You mentioned you won a lot of money, but that's a modest way of you know, glazing over the fact that you turned a thousand dollars into a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, turning stone that uh that summer. So that was a very good summer. It was mostly two five and five ten. Um I ran so good. I mean the max buy-in was five hundred and it felt like I had over five K at the end of the night almost every single day. Um so like I think I had a lot of things going for me there but i'm sure i also ran hotter than the sun uh in order to do that in just two months you drop out uh you immediately start jumping on the tournament circuit (laughs) uh a bit so when i first dropped out i was actually a month before turning 21 so the first thing i did was fly to uh wsop europe it was in paris that year uh so this is 2013 so it's like october of 2013 um and played some tournaments there met some people i met elliot smith there who ended up becoming a close friend um i don't know if he's like a super well-known name in the poker community but he's certainly had a number of tournament scores and was a big 2550 like crusher on stars for a long time which is a you know obviously super respected uh player pool but well he's he's uh very well known in the music industry. Yes, but I different think Elliot, different different Elliot Smith. <laughs> this is the Elliot Smith that looks like Thor, um, as opposed to that oh, okay. Elliot Smith with the, <laughs> the sweet angelic voice. So I ended up moving in with him and, and getting to know him and his friends and, and learning poker uh, through them and traveling the circuit a bit uh, for that year, which was a really good learning experience and good networking for me, um, as I really needed it given that they didn't realize that my experience was just losing my mind and money online for the past 10 years. They all thought I was very sharp and smart. So I was blessed to fall had uh, to fall accidentally into that crew. What's the story at the PCA? Uh, so PCA that year, so that's January. So I turned 21 in December and January, we went to Bahamas together. There was a uh, big PLO game running. I didn't have that much experience playing PLO. 
And Elliot was like, Dan, you need to play this game. This game looks so good. I know it's good. And he was in the tournament and he doesn't know how to play PLO. He's like, you've played PLO before. And I was like, kind of, not really. Um, and he's just like, look, man, just like, it's a good shot. Just take a shot. Um, min bio is 10K. So we agreed I would take 5K and he would take 5K. So he gave me 5K and I went and bought him for 10K. Um, I get to the table. The game is 2550 PLO with a $100 on the button mandatory. And so the action starts in the small blind, but I very quickly realized that almost every hand, someone was straddling to between 500 to 2000 from just random <laughs> positions. So it was like the greatest game of all time. Um, like, you know, just every hand, uh, there's just a ton of dead money out there. And, uh, you know, my strategy was I'll just wait for aces. Um, and I did, and I got aces and pot was basically all in. So I just said all in and, I won and then um, I waited for aces again and I said pot and it was basically all in like no, no decisions. And um, by the end of the night playing basically just aces, I mean, sometimes by the way, as the night went on, the straddles got as high as like four and there was one 10 K straddle. It was, I mean, it was a ludicrous game. And I remember I had 60 or 70 K at the end of the night and Elliot comes over to sweat. Uh, I don't know if you've been to PCA, but the casino actually closes so they have a last hand uh, at around 2 a.m. You know, they announce five hands left in the cash games before we close the, the poker room. And so the very last hand of the night, there was a guy from Detroit who straddled to 6K. And, you know, I'm just like dreaming of booking up the booking this win. Uh, and I look down and it folds to me and I'm like second to last. So it's just me and this guy. And I look down at, you know, queen, queen uh jack nine i think with a suit and i like i've only been playing aces but like how can you not it's you know i can make it 18k uh it's just me and him like this has to be a better hand than whatever the random four cards he has are so i i said pot and he calls dark without looking at his <laughs> hand elliot's on the rail watching i'm like my my heart is beating through my my chest like i you know, i can hear my heart and the flop comes ace 10 three or something some terrifying ace high board he checks dark uh so i check and the turn is an eight uh so i think i have um i think my hand is uh not as good as this so my i think my hand is trying to think because i believe i had an open ender and over pair by the turn so maybe the turn is a nine so it's you know ace ten three nine and my hand is queen queen jack nine so i have an open ender and uh, the pair of queens and, and I pair the nine as well. Like I have a trips draw and uh, he looks at uh, two cards and then says pot. Um, remember he hasn't looked at his hand yet up until this point <laughs> in the hand. And I just sat there for a while being super miserable and eventually decided to to put the money in. Cause I, it was, I mean, I'd watched him play all day and I was pretty sure he could have looked at basically anything like eight, seven for just the lower open ender would have for sure just looked at it and said pot. So we put the money in uh, the board, like comes a complete brick, probably like pairs threes or it's a deuce or something. And he just uh, says, okay, uh, I can't win yet. And so he's only looked at two. Obviously I just have Queens. So like it just an ace. Yeah. And so I, I had to sit there as he, as he peeled each card, you know, like Baccarat squeezed each card. And this is like $140,000 pot. And I've never played a pot bigger than like 15 K in my life before today. So 
as just like losing my mind. And then he eventually, you know, squeezes two bricks and says, you win. And it was the, like, at, to, up to that point, like the craziest uh, pan and probably like the most intense thing that had happened to me. It was uh, quite wild. And then Elliot and I got to go celebrate the 140K stack I'd gotten from this 10K shell that he'd convinced me to fire. And this is like a month after my 21st birthday. That is quite a bankroll booster. Yeah, it really was. Uh, 2014 seems like you start hitting tournaments a little bit more often. Uh, Was there a thought process to that or? Uh, So 2014, is that the year I won the circuit ring? Correct. Yes. So 2014 is just the year that I turned I mean, I turned 21 December of 2013, so it's just the first year I could legally play. You were playing cash and tournaments all together, everything combined? Yes, correct. Okay, Uh so um, I assume WSOP was always the goal, right? Yeah, so I I grew up watching the World Series. The World Series was always my dream to play in and compete in, and so that was 100%. I couldn't wait for the the world series to come around. And what was it like your first experience? And not only that, but just, you know, seeing all of these people that you were watching on TV now in person, maybe, maybe for the better, maybe for the worst. <laughs> yeah. So getting there was super exciting. I like, couldn't wait to see what it looked like. And, um, I just, you build a thing up in your mind after watching it for so many years and having it being what you consider, you know, the pinnacle of, of the thing that you're aspiring to do. Um, by this point I had like, so even after that PCA game, I continued to spin up pretty well in, in cash games. And I was as much as I was excited to play the world series, I was finding myself playing like pretty big games were running during the the world series and they were clearly pretty good. And so even when I got there, my plan had been to just play the tournaments and try to win a bracelet. I, I quickly found myself playing all nighters anytime I wasn't in a tournament in cash and then missing a couple days because of how tired I was. And I just, I went in with a plan and then did not come close to <laughs> executing that just because back then everything i was having trouble not thinking about everything in terms of hourly and it was clearly the cash games that were running clearly had a better hourly than tournaments and i just was only like i think very often younger people when they first get into poker start to see things in terms of hourly and just maximizing uh ev in every spot and that was a trap i definitely fell into back then and so just so frequently wasn't doing what i think i would enjoy most and was sort of punishing myself to do what i thought was just the best dollar earn right now um and that was really the first couple world series for me i just have constant memories of playing 72 hour sessions and amazing games and then sleeping for 72 hours and just repeating and then by the end of the world series feeling like a empty shell of a human being and then not not wanting to get out of bed for two months afterwards you were finding success at the series though right away i think you had at least one final table every year you've played it right yes so i I don't think i ever failed to final table i I know i don't know which the order is i remember i made a a 1k plo final table at some point in the 
1510 game, maybe the one Bryn Kenny one. I remember I final table that I just can't remember what the buy-in was or exactly what the mix was, but I, I always did pretty well in the tournaments I played. I just wasn't playing that many of them at the time. It was basically the, the structure of my day was always play a tournament. And then as soon as you bust the tournament, go play cash. And then oftentimes I wouldn't leave the cash game for two days and then I would be dead for another two days. And so I just wouldn't be seen or heard from for the next week. And then I would come back and play one tournament again. And that was kind of the, the way those world series used to go. I'll get back to the WSP in a second, but since you mentioned it, we have a question here. What was your longest session ever? Um, so when I was still, <laughs> so after this first year, by the way, in, uh, when I was 21, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things happened in this year. I, lost an insane amount of money post world series of 2013 playing private games in LA, the very classic way to uh, lose a bunch of money very quickly. Maybe you got cheated. Maybe, uh, maybe you didn't, you never know in those, but Mm -hmm. um, I went back to school. So I've actually dropped out of college twice. So in 2013, I returned to school for my senior year of college and thought that, uh, oh shit, I've uh, fucked up. I was almost out of money, but not quite. Um, And was playing small online and driving to commerce on weekends uh, to play. And so I dropped all the way down from what I had been playing, which is a lot of 2550, no limit at the time. Uh, 1020 and 2550 live no limit. I switched to playing two five and some five ten shots uh, during that first semester of senior year, and I had multiple like crazy sessions at two five and five ten at Commerce and spun up like a pretty big bankroll again in the course of two months. And then towards the end of that semester, there was a guy who wanted to play old school open face Chinese. So this game, most people might not even know this exists, existed, but for a while, the popular game before pineapple existed, but after close face existed was um, you were dealt five cards at once and you set them. And then you were dealt one card at a time. It's like the, the original uh, open face Mm. Chinese poker. And there was, there was a guy at commerce who really liked this game and really wasn't very good at it. And wanted to play very long hours. And so uh, I'd play for pretty big. And so I'd spun up enough of a bankroll to, to start playing this game with him. And it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have lasted long if I had run bad at the start, but I ran good at the start. And so what I used to do is I had a best friend in college who would drive me to the casino on Friday, as soon as I got out of class at like three o'clock and we would start playing open face and we would play straight from like whenever I got to the casino, which was around 4 p.m. on Friday until classes started on Monday. So, oh my God. <laughs> uh, like, I think my first class was 10 a.m. Monday. So my friend would drive me home at like 8 on Monday and I would not have slept for the entire weekend. And I did that for like two months straight and I would fall asleep every single time in class on Monday. Um, like, without fail, that teacher, uh, 
uh, was very, very aware that uh, something was wrong. I mean, I would just sit down in class and then just fall asleep sitting straight up uh, within five minutes of, of his class every single time. But that was a lot of, uh, I'm trying to think of exactly how long those sessions are. That's all of Saturday, all of Sunday, and then plus like 14 hours on each end. So <laughs> 48, 58, it's like 62-hour sessions for eight weekends in a row. Um, I may have played a longer one when there was a lawyer coming to play pretty big no limit games in commerce in 2018. There was a guy who would come and we would play from when he got there on Friday until when he ran out of money. And that could sometimes last until Monday as well. So those were similar as they were Friday to Monday. Um, I don't know if any of them ever ran longer, though, than the 62 hours that I did those eight consecutive weekends. But it's somewhere around there. So 72, when I said that earlier, it might be a bit of an exaggeration. But I've done a lot of 60 plus hour sessions. Well, you're built to sit in the chair for a while, which uh, is a foreshadowing to this summer. Um, let's uh, let's get back to the series. What, when did the ambition come for you to win Player of the Year? Did it come after you won the first bracelet? Uh, yeah, I'd say like at the same time as winning the first bracelet. So I'd always thought about it, and then I won that bracelet pretty early in the series. And I, again, had come into the series thinking I was going to play tournaments and then ending up more in cash games the first week than I had expected to. And I had such a good start that I remember being like, oh, OK, now I really do want to chase this thing. And so for the first time, that was 2019, I like committed to just the full schedule and I sat down and I actually played all the tournaments and I didn't play any cash that summer. And... I was leading for the most of it. And then I hit like a one week stretch where I bricked everything. And in that stretch, I think Rob Campbell won two bracelets and Sean won one bracelet. And I ended up slipping a bit. And at the end of the series, I was in fourth. And that was back when World Series of Europe still counted. And so I had this big decision of whether or not I wanted to go to Rosvidov to play I think it's 11 total bracelet events over the course of 31 days that you spend in the middle of nowhere in the Czech Republic uh, while sitting in fourth place. And I talked a lot about it with my then girlfriend, now fiance, and she and I concluded I would probably be able to find a better opportunity than maybe I was like 20 percent and it was going to be a pretty miserable 30 days for just 20 percent chance of success. So I, I did end up skipping it, but that was that was the first year that I committed to, it and I really felt like the, you know, I felt the it was doable passion for it. Yeah, it felt very like real that year chasing it, and I really committed to wanting to win one before I step away from poker after that year. What was it? Uh, what was it like winning the bracelet? I imagine that was a a big bucket list thing for you growing up seeing MoneyMaker. For sure. So like. I always coming up in poker took the attitude of, uh, you know, pretend like you've been there before type thing is I found that it kept me grounded more than trying to like display awe or um, excitement when new things would happen to me. Um, and I remember after winning that bracelet, doing an interview and like keeping my cool and like doing the whole act like you've been there before thing. And then mm -hmm. I 
like got out of the tournament room and got outside of the casino and I just sat down and like cried. Uh, I like realized how like uh, meaningful it was to me in a way that I hadn't even realized myself um, given just all the years of failure that I had coming up in poker and how this had always just been something that I had really desired and, and wanted. And it was like a big dream for little me and to have reached a point not only to win one, but at that point be in a pretty stable place uh, in life and in poker was like a very meaningful uh, moment for me. We always ask, where do you keep the bracelet? Uh, it's in my dad's home office currently. I give it to him. Okay. Okay. Do a little Hellmuth style there where he just passes them out to family. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's I don't know that I am going to pass each one out to different family members or even that that one's permanently there, but that's that's where it's been. <laughs> OK, cool. OK, so let's talk about this summer. Uh, you come in and uh, like I said, make it a final table every year, pretty much guaranteed. And uh, let's see, I have the full stats for here. You cashed 16 times for a total of one point four five million dollars. And of course, one bracelets number two and three. Uh, did it all go according to plan, or was this even more than you could have imagined? I mean, the plan every year is to compete for player of the year and to try to win a bracelet. This is definitely like better than plan because plan is, you know, one bracelet is above expectation. Like, you know, anyone would give you even money on winning a bracelet in any given year. So it's. It's definitely super exciting to win two and, and just having won one was very exciting and that's all you need to compete for player of the year. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a stellar year. I, I have nothing to complain about. I final tabled three of the 10 Ks. Um, each one of those is like a, you know, uh, between 150 and 200 people usually enter those. And so they're not the hardest events to final table, but they're still, you're only going to average, you know, one a year of those at best maybe like uh maybe less than one probably like half of one a year so the final table three of them was uh a huge blessing and to actually close two of them out and to even go deep in the third one was um way above expectations and more than i could have ever asked so uh yeah really really exciting uh runouts for me uh deep in tournaments which for the most part in the past i hadn't had so at the start of my world series career it was funny I was beginning to build a joke where I realized that I think after my first eight final tables at the World Series, or at least my first eight top tens, I was second all time at the World Series for top tens without a top three finish. Um, mm. So it was, <laughs> I was beginning to question if I even knew how to close or how to play final tables at some point, because it was very frustrating to have uh, eight separate top 10 finishes and have never made it to top three. Um, Cause of course all the money's up top and also just wanting to win one. Uh, it's a very, very, um, it's just a feeling of like, what am I doing wrong uh, that comes up? And so uh, winning the bracelet, obviously in 2019 helped alleviate some of those fears, but this year having three of my four top 10 finishes finish in top three was just such a great feeling after many years of disappointing final tables so for the people listening at home what does it take to compete for player of the year like how much money do you set aside for the summer 
and realistically how many events do you plan on playing you know what's the what's the thought process or is it like do you have a parachute if two weeks in you know you've bricked everything and you're out of contention you know so I think as far as the parachute goes, if I bricked everything was out of contention, I'd still play a full-ish schedule. I just wouldn't play the the really big no limits because I'm not confident that I'm actually a favorite in those. Like I think I might be a, a small dog, or if I'm a favorite, it's a very very small favorite with massive amounts of variance. So otherwise, I'd still continue to play tournaments and just try to win a bracelet. But I would skip the 250k and the 100k and the 50k no limits. Um, what I set aside. So I played, I believe, about three quarters of a million dollars in buy-ins this year. Um, but that includes a 250K and a couple of 50Ks that, I mean, I sold a bunch for the 250K. And I imagine uh, you wouldn't have played them had you not already won two bracelets anyway. Correct. Yeah, I would have skipped the, everything except the 50K PLO. So the 50K PLO I would have played anyway. But the, the 50K no limits I would have skipped without having a good start and the 250k definitely would have skipped it's it's hard to what which by the way you cashed in you made the the final table eighth place you know yeah du- that was exciting double the money yeah it was fun that was a really fun tournament i thought i was going to win it uh for a while i was overwhelming chip leader on the bubble so eighth ended up being uh you know in retrospect i'm not disappointed at all just because it's a 250k and i'm not a no limit tournament expert the way that you know, nine of the final or eight of the final 10 players are. So it's, you know, very tough tournament to, to do well in. And I'm, I'm very happy with my result, but there was a brief time there where it looked like I might really have a shot to win it, which was, uh, got me very excited. But anyway, the, <laughs> I said, excited, you know, I don't know of my own money. I probably paid about 400 K in buy-ins, I would guess. And, and that's about what I expect to buy in for each year. I mean, I never expect to, completely brick off the series but it would never surprise me to lose i don't know 250 is probably like a reasonable bottom 15 percentile outcome so like you should expect that to happen once every six years chasing this uh maybe once maybe it's like bottom 10 percent, and i'm overestimating tournament variance but it's certainly something that could realistically happen uh playing every event well and all the high rollers you know uh dana negranu lost a million <laughs> chasing the very same title for sure but he that's including all of two shells of 250k yeah. and all of two shells of 100k which like i don't have those in my range of outcomes so i i only have you know 20k of myself in in the 100k or 25k of myself in the 250k like it's just i can't lose the huge chunks that that he can Let's talk about those bracelets, both in 10K championships, like you mentioned, Stud 8, Omaha 8. You get heads up in both, and the guy you're heads up with refuses to lose. (laughs) These matches go on for seven and then eight hours, respectively. Uh, Obviously, you're built for it. You're used to long sessions. What what was those grinds like? Yeah, so that's one thing I've said when people have said that must have been exhausting is uh, for me or for them. Because uh, <laughs> I certainly, as as uh, talking about those all those late night sessions, the sixty hour sessions. But beyond that, just over the years, especially since I transitioned to mixed games, most mixed games break around 
you know, one or two in the morning. And I have constantly been the person who says, does anyone want to still play heads up um, and just play till six or seven in the morning? So I've had a lot of these, these all night sessions of, of poker uh, in the live arena. And so I, I always think that it's almost certain that I've done more of it than whoever I'm playing against in terms of just draw hours past 3 a.m. Uh, both guys did refuse to lose. They both played um, really tough and uh, they're, I mean, we were playing split po- split pot games for both of them, which uh, makes it oftentimes go longer. Limit Omaha eight or better plays pretty small, and limit stud eight or better plays so small heads up because the uh, ante is designed for eight people to be anteing it instead of two, and so there's nothing to steal. And then uh, the game isn't even structured well for heads up because the person who brings in is the low card and the low card has the advantage over the high card. And so there's just so many pots that there's just no action at all. And you just trade the the bring in and the ante back and forth forever. Um, they, I mean, I have nothing but good things to say about how each of them played heads up. And at the final table, David Funkhauser was my opponent in the study and Dustin Dirksen was my opponent in the 08. I'll say that, um, and the 08 specifically is it was the first one. Um, I had Dustin out chipped 20 to one within an hour. And it looked like I was just going to win a one hour heads up match. And then he came back and tied it. And then I had him out chipped 10 to one again. And I thought I was going to win. And then he came back and tied it. And then he was up 10 to one on me. And I was sitting there like, oh my God, I was up 20 to one and 10 to one. Am I really about to lose this? And I remember uh, at one point, Dustin won a really big pot to get back into the chip lead at one of these points and just like started barking very loudly in my direction. (laughs) And we're on stream and I was just sitting there like, my God, I'm never watching this back again if I lose this match. (laughs) Like this is going to be a documentary of the worst, the worst evening of my poker career. Uh, (laughs) So I'm very glad that I ended up coming back from that 10 to one deficit and closing that one out. But it was really a super, super swinging match with Dustin that felt like it could have gone both ways numerous times over the course of those seven hours. And the fact that it was being streamed and Dustin had like a really loud, uh, raucous and drunk rail that was needling me constantly. And Dustin got very excited. A few times he made big spin ups and it was just very, uh, very draining in the moments where I was getting short stacked or I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to lose this. Uh, like so frustrating. Um, but I thought <laughs> I kept it together in terms of my play and emotions and I watched it back and I, I felt that way as well. Watching it back. You didn't win POI that night, but I think if you finish second there, I don't think you win POI. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't yeah, think the results been. follow the same way. You're probably right. It, it probably would have been uh, a really tough one to lose and, and bounce back from immediately. Like, I think I, I do, for what it's worth, pride myself these days on uh, much stronger mental toughness than I had at many earlier points in my career, obviously talking about my earlier career. But uh, that would have been a painful heads up match to, to blow the 20 to one and then 10 to one chip lead in. So you, you might be right. Uh, so now you're the player of the year. You get a banner. You got a trophy. I think they, they pay for your main event buy-in. Um, you going to do it all again next summer or, or is it, you know, that been there, done that? No, I'll, I'll for sure be chasing it next year. Um, 
I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy the competition of chasing it um, with Sean and with Daniel and whichever of, you know, there's like 40 people that if they win an early tournament or get an early score, they'll chase it as well. So it's, it's always me, Sean, Daniel, and, you know, one of, or like five of a grouping of a hundred people that, that run hot early on, but uh, it's a lot of fun for me. Um, as long as I'm coming out for full series, which I will probably until I have kids, um, I will be uh, in the mix uh, chasing that each year. All right. We got some rapid fire questions to close it out. If you're ready. Yep. Do not feel pressured into answering these at a rapid rate. <laughs> um, what's the story about the, about the, the Russian high stakes player who staked you with a single chip? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, so that's when I was 21 and living with Elliot, Elliot and I traveled to a tournament series at Monte Carlo and it was there was like a very good 200 400 no limit game running and so i got backed in it to play i think i had like 20 percent of myself but i get bought in for uh 20k into the game and i remember the early hand at the table that i won was a big one where i had pocket nines and I think I was playing scared. It was like under the gun opens, two people call. I just call with my like 40 blind stack from the small blind. And the big blind is like this Russian guy who the game is clearly built around. And he like makes a small three bet from the big blind. So the, the original open is probably the 1200. Three people call. I call. He makes it like 3,500. Everyone calls except me. And it gets back to me. And there's, you know, there's like 15K in dead money out there. And I only have 20K in my stack. So I shove with nines. And he instantly reshoves for 400,000 effective with everyone else. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was like, ah, fuck. Um, That's good protection. <laughs> every, everyone else folds and the board runs off uh, King 10, 8, 7, 4 with four hearts. And I have black nines. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, you know, just shrug my hands. I'm like, you win. And he just stares at me. He's like, no, I think you win. And I was like, no, you win. Uh, so I turn over nines and, and he has ace queen of clubs. Um, and so I win like a 60K pot there. And then I end up winning a big pot off um, Antonio Esfandiari later in this game. I think I end up cashing out like 120K. And at the end of the night, the that casino, I think, I can't, I can't remember if that casino closes or if the game just broke. I think there's a last hand there as well. Um for the night because these are these are not casinos like the monte carlo cash games are run out of like a hotel ish area instead of a casino anyway uh he asks if i'm playing the the 25k the next day and i I say no i'm not and so he just takes a 25k off his chip and he just throws it at us you know throws it at me and he says you have 20 percent uh and then he just walks away without giving me contact info or who he is like i I never saw him again i I did go play the tournament and intended to like try to find him (laughs) if I cashed it, but uh, he had 80% of me in the 25 K uh, that I played the next day. Um, and that was the first 25 K I think I ever played. Um, so very amusing free roll. Yeah. I wonder what he did for a living. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. No idea. <laughs> Never have seen him again. Um, all right. What's a, you own part of live at the bike. Uh, I did. I, 
um, have not in the last three years. So I lived in LA for a while. I was playing the games, doing commentary and had a piece of the company. And I moved, I was in a long distance relationship with my now fiance. Uh, I was in LA, she was in York and decided that we were going to, we were getting more serious and her job was much less flexible than mine and also was a very important job. And so I, uh, moved back east and sold my stake in the company since there was nothing. All owners at Live at the Bike have to contribute actively. That's like the way that the company is set up, and there was no way I could contribute actively anymore. So I sold my stake. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, I know you played a lot of big pots on there. People can search YouTube and see a ton. Um, yeah. What was the biggest pot you ever won or lost? Um, in anything? Sure. Um. That's a good question. Uh, trying to think, uh, probably somewhere in the vicinity. I mean, I've played a, I've scooped a five-way capped pot in Bobby's room, which is thirty k five ways is one hundred fifty k. There's no way that's the biggest. I think we played fifty k capped PLO in commerce in a mixed game once and i scooped a four-way capped pot so that would be a 200k pot the pot i lost against garrett with ace king against ace queen was probably close to 200k as well i'm not sure if that was larger or smaller the river bet was 80k and the turn bet was 20k so that's yeah that pot's for sure over 200k that might be the biggest pot i've ever lost is ace king against ace queen that one's on youtube um against garrett uh I just Jared Adelstein, who's also been on this podcast. I mean, obviously, you play a ton of six-figure pots. Do do you does the heart pump a little faster during these, or is it all the same? Yeah, I mean, these days I don't anymore because I just mostly play online, and I mostly play mixed games as well these days. So it's like a lot of twenty to thirty k pots constantly, but much less six-figure pots. I just haven't played big bet, especially uncapped big bet in over three years so it's been a long time since i played uncapped no limit or uncapped plo most mostly i'm playing uh, a mix of 10 to 12 games and then there's no limit in plo or in there but they're capped at you know you can only win or you can only lose 30k a hand each person or 40k a hand and so the pots really don't get bigger than 100k anymore for me um but the, the heart certainly did used to pump a little bit more any bobby's any any cool bobby's room stories uh, cool Bobby's room stories. Um, let's think. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, obviously, my huge life accomplishment for me, uh, and just like dream come true, has been playing with a uh, cash with a couple of guys. Like, I have a picture that I took when I was twenty three or twenty four. That is me, Negranu, Ivy, and doyle all playing in bobby's room together and that will always be a very uh special picture for me that i got to to play with all of them at once um that's kind of crazy <laughs> yeah as i don't know if that will ever happen again um so that was that's just a fun one for me uh crazy poker's mount rushmore right there right well three three of the four <laughs> i don't i don't uh i don't count towards it but yes, that was a, a very exciting moment just for me. In terms of crazy stories, I think I've missed 
a lot of the madness. I really have only spent two summers playing consistent volume in there and I, I don't come on the off season. And so uh, I will tell, I, I have one fun story of, um, I don't know if viewers or anyone will know who Ray D is. Um, I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name, but he plays the world series uh, from time to time. Yeah. Ray Dekhargani. Yeah. So he's a long time Bobby's room reg as well. This Atta story happens. This story happens not at, in Bobby's room, but he is a regular in the game and it's just a, a fun story. I like to tell where um, he's very big on challenging people to heads up. Um, I love playing heads up mix um, and love battling. And so we were at commerce. I think a game broke. He wanted to keep playing overnight. I said, okay, uh, we're playing, I believe, I believe 2k, 4k, but it might've been 1k, 2k. It's, it's a big game uh, of heads up poker. Um, he picks two games. I pick two games. Uh, I end up picking Badoogie. And I think we're a couple hours into the session and I'm, I'm winning a little bit, but I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable that I, I really feel Ray's known for having excellent live reads. He's not like a, you know, a solver or fundamental type player, but he's a very long-term long time successful player in the, in the high stakes scene. And uh, a lot of credit goes to him just having reads, whether they're physical reads or just player reads or whatever. He's, you know, excellent, excellent at, uh, game flow and everything that is not solver related. So hand comes up. Uh, the game is Badugi, which I'm not sure if everyone will be familiar with, but the, the goal of the game is to get four unpaired um, unsuited cards to each other. Uh, preferably have them be lower. But any any hand that has, contains four uh, unpaired unsuited cards uh, beats any hand that's not. And so I raise the button and heads up. He calls um, he's drawing the whole way. It's a, it's a triple draw game. So you have three chances to draw and at each opportunity he draws one and I sit, I stand pat, meaning I take no cards. Um, so when you're doing this, what I'm doing, you're claiming that you already have a made hand. You're saying I'm taking no cards because I already have a made Badugi. My hand is four unpaired unsuited cards. Um, so I bet each street and he continues to call uh, and continues to draw one. And on the river, when there's no draws left, he takes one and, and I'm stand pat and he checks before looking at his card um, as people will sometimes do. And I bet again, claiming that I have the four card hand. So like I'm ahead and uh, maybe I'm bluffing, maybe I'm not. He'll have to decide what to do if he doesn't make his hand with the final draw. Uh, and Ray raises me without looking at his final card. Um, <laughs> and so this is, basically a giant middle finger of I know you're bluffing so much that if I'm wrong, I'm willing to lose multiple extra bets for no reason, because most of the time he's going to miss and he could just call and he'll win if I'm bluffing. And there's no reason to raise because if I'm bluffing, uh, whatever I'm bluffing with won't beat the hand that he's been drawing to. Um, but by raising, like, I can't continue if I'm bluffing. I'm just going to have to fold if I'm bluffing. And so if I have a real hand, I just get to three bet because he still has 80% likely to have nothing because he's he's drawn and not looked at his card. Um, so raising me dark is just like, I have a pure read that you're bluffing and I'm so confident in it that I'm going to do something really stupid that intentionally lights money on fire if I'm wrong. Uh, and he was right. I was bluffing and I just instantly quit the game. I was just like, nope. I can't beat that. <laughs> Whatever that is, I can't beat it. Uh, that is 
humbling. <laughs> yeah, ex- extremely. That was the. Did you ever uh, find out what your tell was? No, but I, I've mentioned it to him in in more recent years. As we were on less good terms back then, um, and are on better terms these days. And he just he just laughs every time I tell this story and just like nods, <laughs> like as if he knows something. So, uh, he, he just yeah, that's about crazy. Sitting there in that polarized spot where you either, you either have it or you don't, and he's just like, I know for a fact. God, that's got to feel so bad. <laughs> right. There's no upside for it's just rubbing it in, basically. The, the race is just purely rubbing it in of how confident he is. So, yeah, that was a rough that's one great. for me. All right. I got a few more and then I'll let you go. Um, uh, anybody ever call you Zach Dan? <laughs> Uh, no, not really. Just okay. maybe very quickly, jokingly, but not as a real name. You know, I was thinking about it uh, before we started talking, how, you know, Phil has always been at the pinnacle of poker names, I think. But I think you could make the argument that Dan or Daniel has surpassed the Phil's. What do you think? There's a lot of us. Uh, I think it's a pretty close competition these days. Uh <laughs> I'd probably yeah. still take the fills, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, a a lot of the fills have gone away too. Like Phil Gordon is gone now, right? Yeah. Uh, Phil Ivy's back though. So Phil Ivy's back. Galfond is still doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you guys got also with a Dan, resurgence this year. Dan Cates, back-to-back winner. Yeah, Negreanu, Cates, Weinman. Um, That's myself, right. Dan P-O- Smith. POY number two was a Dan. That's crazy. Okay, um, let's see here. Uh, what about artistic talents? Do you have any uh, artistic talents, hidden Tr- talents? Truly, None? truly no art, art, not a single art bone in my body. No instruments? No. Can't, I was really good at Guitar Hero. Okay. I know, you, that, you did uh, grow up as a real competitive instrument. gamer, right? I did. I, I traveled the circuit for Halo for a little bit. I was very good at Guitar Hero. I mean, I've gotten quite good at a number of different um, strategy games as my side projects over the years while playing poker as well. But I wouldn't call those in any way art. Um, <laughs> I just love love strategy games in general, and that's always been my side hobby to poker. Is I play poker as a strategy game for money, and then when I am burned out of it. Um, it's not that I'm burned out of strategy games. It's just that I'm burned out of one specific strategy game. It's it's I, I've almost never not just wanted to play strategy games. What about the best swap or piece you've ever had of anybody? Um, I don't really have any good uh, swaps or pieces. I feel like I've consistently lost small when i've taken pieces of people and no one has ever hit anything when i've swapped with them so uh, there's not been a way i've ever uh succeeded and i I swap less and less and buy less and less each year as my experience is just purely negative well that's good you haven't been burned too bad that's good uh what was your largest non-poker wager largest non-poker wager um that's a good question. Uh, I've I had quite a decent amount of money on specific states in the last election. Um, that's probably the biggest I've ever wagered. There were 
a lot of books had like four to one or three and a half to one on a bunch of different individual states that 538, I mean, who knows how good 538 is, but they had all of these states listed as over 90, 98% to be Biden. Um, it was like Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Virginia, and Nevada, I think. Maybe Nevada wasn't on there. But anyway, all the books had them at three to one. And I put a lot of money down uh, on Biden on all of these states. And he ended up scooping all of them. So that was nice. But I think that's the most I've ever had on something that wasn't poker. Nice. Uh, who was your celebrity crush growing up? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. T- I mean, you can still crush on T-Swift. I mean, you still can not Nothing's changed. <laughs> um, if you could download one skill instantly, like in the Matrix, what would you choose? Ooh. Uh, dancing. Dancing. I cannot dance, and I would really like to <laughs> be able to. That would be nice. How good would that be if you could bust out any dance still? You know, not just like regular club dancing, but like. Whatever the situation calls for, you've got it in your back pocket. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds like the dream to me. Uh, what was your worst job before poker? And if not for poker, what would you be doing? Uh, I have never worked anything. Um, <laughs> and if not for poker, my plan was to become a lawyer. These days, I have like various offers from hedge funds, but... I am very skeptical that I actually could hold any of these jobs down. So very, very unclear what I actually would be uh, if not for poker. Headphones on at the table, yes or no? Uh, Almost never these days. Every year, less and less. I think it's bad for the environment, uh, the table environment, not like the global environment. And uh, also just I found that it's pretty enjoyable to spend your time at the table trying to be social. Uh, you learn a lot and you meet a lot of cool people and it's just a good way to, to spend your time. You can listen to music any other time. If you could name the entertainment for the Super Bowl halftime show, what would you pick? Taylor Swift. <laughs> there you go. Get a two for one there. Um, what about any underrated food combinations that you enjoy? uh raspberries and anything okay i have uh the common order that i get second looks at is my starbucks order is uh hot chocolate with uh raspberry shots they have raspberry oh, syrup together yeah okay do you have a celebrity doppelganger or growing up did people tell you you look like somebody screech oof because of the hair i guess i mean but yeah man that's not kind. I don't see Screech there. Really? I don't <laughs> think it's that bad of one. Rest in peace, Dustin Diamond. Yeah. Uh, are you superstitious at all? No, not at all. Zero percent. Like annoyingly zero percent to everyone else. <laughs> what about any phobias? Uh, no. I, I'm sure there are some, but I, I can't think of them offhand. Nothing like interferes with life. Do you collect anything? Uh, not these days. Um, when I was growing up, everything. Uh, baseball cards, coins, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, Harry Potter cards, Magic the Gathering cards. But uh, 
really not anymore. Did those get sold for a bankroll <laughs> or did you just purge no, them? <laughs> they're just all in my parents' basement. We actually went through them during COVID and we're trying to figure out how much they're worth and concluded not much. Uh, so <laughs> what's the most beautiful place you've ever seen in person? Um, Blue Lagoon in Malta, probably. Uh, or just yeah. like the fjords in Norway one or the other do you have anything left on your uh travel bucket list many too many to list (laughs) do you like telling people you're a professional poker player uh no not because it's embarrassing but just because it leads to a lot of questions that i've uh you know answered so many times at this point that it's uh it's just feels very uh it's not new or exciting anymore um to to deal with that that line of questioning have you ever had a near-death experience uh well when we all thought there was a shooter at the world series this year certainly felt like one so you were you were in the paris room at the time i was yeah okay Uh, were you one of the people that ran over daniel I was not. No, (laughs) man. It's that was like people are like, I think from the outside looking in, don't understand the situation as it appears to anybody in that room. They just see the facts and go, oh, it was a rock a mile away. Yeah, there's a lot of Twitter comments that are like, I would have waited to hear gunshots and wouldn't have moved otherwise. And it's like, I mean, maybe you wouldn't have. But I certainly when someone when when you see 100 people running in one direction, screaming shooter, you believe them. Uh, right you don't stop to go show me the evidence <laughs> correct you know yeah. just insane you know and i and it seems to me like this is not a, as big a story as it could have been nationally it is wild uh, to me how little coverage it's received i can't believe it i mean we're talking about eight nine casinos where this phenomenon was it was experienced and it's like no one's talking Nothing. about it it's very it's very very strange to me so weird anyway uh, we end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. You ready? I'm ready. Do do do. Okay. Um, what was your favorite toy as a child? Uh. Were you a Lego young. kid? Yeah, I had lots of Legos, lots of figurines as well, like Disney figurines. I used to make a huge parade of of all of ours. Um, I don't know. Legos is, is a good answer. Tennis ball is probably a good answer, too. Um, just forever loved throwing the tennis ball against the wall uh, out in our backyard in our driveway against the garage. And the simple, I mean, from like the, the age of five. Toy of all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that'll get it done, you know, with, with toddlers, a, a cardboard box will get it done. Um, anyway, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories, and congrats on winning Player of the Year. Thanks so much, Julio. I appreciate it. That is it. That is the show. Thank you once again to Dan. You can find him on Twitter at Dan underscore underscore Zach. That's Dan Zach with two underscores in the middle. You can also find us on Twitter at Card Player Media. 
If you like the show, please subscribe. And if you really like the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. Once you've done that, please let us know with an email to pokerstories at cardplayer.com and we'll hook you up with a free digital subscription to Card Player Magazine. Thanks for listening.